what's up and welcome back to nostalgia pod giving you another taste of what's going on in pop culture my name is pat sheehan joined by my trusty co-host dave martin swagger dave how's it going this week it's going real well taste pop culture once again how you doing man uh we have not really had that slow of a week since the year started it's uh been one after another um once again we're bringing you content from sundance film festival uh shout out to us for just you know getting those credentials aka uh getting tickets when they go on sale uh pretty cool to be able to uh watch some some sundance films talk about them earlier than most people will be able to see them and uh we got a good one this year we had a, a great one last year i don't know if this lives up to the experience of uh the the fred hampton uh the black messiah yep Jesus and the black messiah but man I, I enjoyed after yang we're gonna be talking about a few other movies as well as some music from this week and uh, a comedy special that dropped just today so if you want to tune into all of these things you should be subscribing at youtube.com slash nostalgia pod go to spotify find us nostalgia and give us a five-star rating and uh all there as well babe we're gonna start though with someone that we haven't talked about in a little while rich brian the guy we, we've reviewed a few times here on the pod so far amen 2018 uh the sailor in 2019 and then la- uh two years ago i was gonna say last year i, I feel like it was last year 2020 2021 just rolling together in my mind 1999 drops just just a few songs on that one but the CP kind of a surprise and I think a really pleasant one because Rich Brian just going hard again. This is absolute fire. All four songs. Super pumped to talk about it. What was your reaction clicking uh, play on Brightside? Yes, similar thoughts. Rich Brian going hard once again. He said himself he wanted to remind everyone that he can still bring those raps. And I think it's really cool to hear him go back to the the basics, the hip hop roots in this manner, because he had definitely been carving a new lane for himself recently. Obviously, he came up with these the hard the bars, as everyone remembers with that stick. But since then, on all those projects you mentioned, we had songs like "Low Like That" and "100 Degrees" and "Love in My Pocket." All these melodic, more poppy songs from brian and i like those songs those are good songs he's definitely branched out and become a more fully uh fully formed artist but to then bring it back and just drop a bunch of bangers uh is also very welcome so i I was quite pleased with this yeah and it starts off right away with new tooth which is just this like stripped down piano uh loop that and then slowly works up you know he's just going hard uh rapping really fast over the beat but just kind of sounding impeccable and flowing so well you get the beat kind of coming in then you get that switch up in the middle where it becomes a little more light and airy and breezy and uh that song just absolute fucking gold for me and then a little bit later on get your mans which got the music video out of these four um him and uh warren hugh together just 
sound amazing, dude. Just like, uh, what, what an awesome song Get Your Mans is, huh? Yeah, Warren Hugh definitely doing his best smoke perp impression <laughs> with the flow. I thought it was very uncanny. But they both are going uh, really hard. Warren Hugh, a fellow 88 Rising uh, member, signee. Brian and him have been on some songs together already. And New Tooth has a video as well, but that song came out uh, back in the uh, end of 2021. Uh, what I liked about a lot of these two is on New Tooth, on Lagoon, you get uh, switch-ups, beat switch-ups, flow switch-ups from Brian. You know, they're, 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 none of these songs are low effort. Um, you know, Sonny, the last one's probably my least favorite of the four, but uh, I just liked hearing him go really hard, get your mans and New Tooth, I think, really catchy. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think... I think those two are the clear standouts, but honestly, all four of these tracks are absolutely great. We're going to be adding um, one of them at least onto our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist on Spotify. So if you're not following that, go do so. Davey, you ready to move off of Rich Brian and on to Ian Dior? Yeah, uh, looking forward to the next 88 Rising uh, Hen the Clouds group album. Should be coming soon. I'm sure we'll get a lot of Brian on that. But yeah, let's move. Let's move on. Ian Dior, an artist we haven't really talked too much about here on the program, on the podcast, and <laughs> it's really funny. And listen, uh, as someone that has not consumed much Ian Dior content until this album, um, it's uh, it is it is you. No, that's not the name of the album. Sorry, uh, I had my notes here mixed up. Uh, on to better things. Uh, apologies so as someone that didn't really listen to him much before this hearing the first couple tracks and not really looking at the the track listing i was like you know this sounds like the kind of young up-and-coming rapper that's kind of just like right in that machine gun kelly mold and i could see him totally doing some like punk stuff and just kind of like sitting in that lane and then uh, a song with travis barker pops up and we get two more features with him on this album and he 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 popped off what two years ago with 24 karat golden with mood i think that was the song that really like caught yeah well honestly i would say ian dior had already been blowing up before that he was more famous and more successful than 24k golden until mood came out and catapulted both of them but especially catapulted 24k golden ian had a lot more music out than golden at that time uh you know three mixtapes slash albums to that point from 2019 2020 and he had some hits already so you know i would say he was kind of a fast rising you know soundcloud scene internet money collaborator type artist um already but then mood kind of i think fast forwarded everyone you know number one hit one of the biggest songs of the year so to hear this is his first uh, project since mood happened though and definitely the one that'll have the most eyes on him thus far. And, you know, I, I was curious to see which way he would go on this because he has some of that melodic SoundCloud rap roots in his past work. He also has a lot more of the emo, sad boy, uh, light pop punk, as we know it today, uh, music as well. You know, he's already made a song with Travis Barker and Machine Gun Kelly, um, sick and tired which was one of his biggest hits so i was curious to see what what a uh, direction he would go with this but probably shouldn't surprise anyone that he's stuck with the emo 
you know, pop route, given how big that sound has been coming back in the past year or so. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think he totally leans into that. It's not, I wouldn't classify this as like an emo punk record per se. I, mm-hmm. Like, I think, I think the first song, Is It You, is very much kind of in that like melodic sing songy rapper type mold. And he, he kind of jumps back and forth as you go through. I found this album to be just okay. Um, I didn't necessarily hate it, but I, I didn't find myself kind of leaving this and being like, man, there's there's a lot of hits off this or last songs I want to find myself going back to, which I don't know. I, I think I think probably people who are fans of him are going to like this and listen to the songs, but I don't know if this is going to grab anybody new per se, I guess might be my take. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I definitely like some songs off of the past work more than this new record. Uh, like, I, I think what's impressive about Ian Dior and why I had kind of been pegging him as a star ever since I heard him is because he ha- he really has a strong knack for melody. Obviously, like mm. melodic hip hop is the default position these days. But Ian, I think, really has a knack for that melody, for those hooks. And he still brings an upbeat uh, and uh, nature to his music. And I think he has a unique personality, despite the fact that, uh, you know, lyrically, he's nothing too special. And production wise, it's often familiar, but I feel like Ian Dior himself is bringing a little more to that table. But I just didn't really hear songs as sticky as, say, like Never Is Enough or, uh, you know, Sick and Tired or you know, romance three six one. He's got some songs I really do enjoy from his past work. And hear stuff I like quite as much on this. It's it gets all the same mold, but I just don't think it's quite as good as what he's already done. And you know, like I guess on a song like Obvious, which has Travis Barker, you still get like a guitar lick as well on top of Travis's drums. That I'm sure that's kind of the route he's he's looking towards, that kind of production. You know, I, I don't know how like how edgy he can really get though with this kind of stuff because it's still gonna be like that sad boy vibe. Maybe he doesn't want to go that way because again, he, he largely keeps it upbeat. You know, like if, if it wasn't if his music wasn't as upbeat as it is, I probably wouldn't like it as much. But yeah, I, I feel like this is kind of just okay, and probably he probably wanted a bigger hit to come out of this, given this is the follow up to Mood after all. So I'm not sure if we're gonna get that hit on this. Probably not. Yeah, you know, I think obvious the song you point out would probably be the song I would pick to be a hit off here. I thought that was interesting to get Machine Gun Kelly to give a verse on thought it was and to have that be just like a more toned down like sad boy song. Because, you know, you think about what really made people like Machine Gun Kelly's last album. It was kind of pairing these sad lyrics with the, the ripping guitars and just that full like punk mood. So uh, kind of an interesting choice. I, I did like in the back half, um, Let You. I thought it sounded like a very much like little Nas X type track. And, you know, you're getting him singing kind of some, some clicky uh, uh, percussion on there. Just like really more upbeat, which I think probably is why it stood out to me. And I do think the first track is it you, even though it's not necessarily my favorite cup of tea in terms of like that sad boy sing songy SoundCloud rap like you talked about. He does do. Uh, he has a pretty good performance on it, I think, and it definitely stood out to me as a as one of the more compelling tracks on here. Anything else stand out to you? 
Yeah, I was curious to hear what the MGK collab would be after Sick and Tired was so successful for them. It's definitely leaning away from, you know, hip hop flows like their first collab did. Uh, yeah. I agree about Is It You. I guess complicated as well. You know, I, I, I like it when he's when he sticks to more of the more of the rapping, but you know, it is interesting to hear like stuff that's not really that, like like Dark Angel. For example, yeah, uh, I'm 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 really just more interested to see what direction he's going to go because he definitely has the, all these like pop bona fides for today, and you can hear it in the hooks. You can hear it in a lot of his his flows on on this record. Even if I don't love a lot of the songs, like all the parts are there, mm-hmm. and we've already seen this manifest, of course, with mood. So yeah, even if I'm not like taking too much away from this, I'm still I think in on him as a you know as a pop star and i still like as i said a lot of his past work already so in dior about to turn 23 i think definitely someone to continue to pay attention to even if this isn't like changing anyone's opinion on him for the positive you know i'd say um i wouldn't be surprised to hear another full-length record in short order because he has to feed the streets yeah i i think you're right the talent is there um we're going to be hearing uh more from him in the future and probably some uh more standout stuff so uh again check out the uh nostalgia best of 2022 playlist for the track from dior we put on there but we're gonna hop over to rock now right i guess this is more like pop music uh rock pop with years and years let me call it rock i don't know about that <laughs> i mean comp- uh, considering what rock is now, i guess it's like what pop, dance pop electro pop yeah or- definitely yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think there's there's more guitar on this than some some rock records nowadays. But, uh, I uh, guess, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, but you're definitely right. Would not say years and years is necessarily rock. Um, we've talked more about Ali Alexander for his acting in the last mm. year than we have years and years. Uh, been yeah. uh, been three years since they put out an album. I guess probably like two two and a few months. Uh, well, it's coming up on four years. Palo Santo album two was 2018 that long ago really? i didn't i hadn't i didn't realize that yeah it's, it's I guess been a the, minute yeah i guess you're right the, the deluxe edition came out i think a little bit after they dropped it so that that's why the 2019 tag on spotify um but yeah i mean we were impressed with ali alexander as um the uh the lead and it's a sin uh, hbo standout show from last year check that out on our best tv shows of 2021 um Years and years, the band, not not really a band I feel like I'm super into or a band that I've listened to a lot in my life, but I've been aware of them. Turning on this record, Night Call. Oh, dude. <laughs> the the first like three or four tracks are just absolutely pop like perfection. And you can you, you can hear why they're a, a legit band and I think a band on the rise we paying attention to. And this is a long album. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, I don't know if this is a, de- a deluxe edition. No, a New Year's it literally edition. calls itself a deluxe edition. What do you mean? <laughs> oh, it says New Year's edition. I'm not what I'm yeah. looking at. So. Only like the first eleven songs are actually new. Then there's a bunch of bonus tracks, and then for the real ones, you'll notice that the last like six songs are previously released years and years songs, aka all their biggest hits. Um, it's kind of annoying that you only can listen to the full fledged 
super deluxe version of this album on Spotify. Um, definitely, definitely misleading. So it's not really a 23 track album. Um, I think it's important to note though that Years and Years is not a band anymore, but rather an Ali Alexander solo project. About a year ago, uh, Mikey and Emery, the other two members, uh, stepped aside amicably and the group is continuing as an Ollie solo project. And this, of course, is the third Years and Years album, but first one as a Ollie solo work. I guess kind of reminiscent of how Aluna George split up, but in that case, Aluna Francis started releasing music just as Aluna, not keeping the name, uh, the same name going. Um, you mentioned that it's all pop on this one and, and quite good. And def I think it's definitely a, a noticeable shift from the other music, which was much more. I think electro pop, dance pop stuff, and not, and there's still plenty of that on this, but there's definitely, I think, a more uh, concerted uh, tilt towards like more mainstream pop music here on Night Call, and probably a good a good call, just because I think Ali Alexander is just a really uh, appealing, multi hyphenate, talented guy at this point. Um, on the other hand, I do like a lot of their other songs. Obviously, King is a massive. Uh, EDM hit and they have a bunch of other songs I like too but this definitely feels like a smart transition for the Ollie only version of the group given that he's the, the centerpiece and, and the only piece now so uh, still I still like the change yeah you know talking about how those first 11 songs are quite good um, I really uh, loved those first two consequences and starstruck. I believe starstruck has been out for yeah. know, a few months now, back in like April of last year. But I thought consequences, consequences, and starstruck back to back were just absolutely electric, uh, an absolute electric intro to the, the album. And you know, you, you just kind of get these moments throughout. Sweet Talker, I think, is another single from this, and it's mm -hmm. just another i think standout track to me um sooner or later i thought also was quite good so there's a there's a lot to like here what, what tracks it out most to you as someone that's a little more um familiar with their sound yeah i uh it, it's actually kind of funny i i liked starstruck and sweet talker a lot more in the context of this album they didn't really grab me as singles i think you know i, I just really love king to this point like i love shine i love desire they have so many songs from their first two records i really enjoy that when i heard the singles i was like eh, not quite doing it the same i'll just listen to the old stuff but when hearing in the context of the full night call you know sequencing i think it makes a lot more sense and sweet talker with that galantis production i think that's the violins like it's like really like impressive electronic music i like that one quite a bit i also like uh 20 minutes i like uh Muscle, which is uh, on the you know the deluxe uh, set of track list, track thirteen. Um, I think Consequences is a great great start, just because like it's really yeah. like bumping beat, you know. Yeah, that that bass um, is so funky. Yeah. Uh, also on the deluxe, uh, Immaculate, I think has really catchy production, um, and you know I think Ali kind of using the whole like theme of like the before and after of like basically like one night like and hooking up and stuff like that uh he's brings a lot of personality and you can definitely see that in his music videos like he's like i said he's a multi-hyphenate guy we're going to be seeing a lot of him in 
a lot of him in many other avenues, but I'm happy he's still focusing on music. And like I said, this tilt towards more pop leaning music, I think is quite a choice just because I think it's something that's going to really work for him because he's just a really like, you know, forward facing person, you know, like he's a big personality. And I think this sound kind of fits that. Oh, I mean, completely listening to this album, it's hard to, to picture these songs not being played at, at nightclubs and just totally remixed. And yeah. uh, I mean, when you get Kylie Minogue, who's kind of one of the, the godmothers of like definitely uh, club and, and house uh, dance pop music, uh, getting the cosign there, it's it's a great look for him. So we're going to be hearing just uh, him taking over the, the dance pop scene <laughs> in the future, if he's not already. Um, again, Nostalgia Best of 2022 on Spotify. Check that out. Dave, we're just going to talk real quick about our guy Aziz Ansari dropping a uh, new comedy special, Nightclub Comedian, today. Short Number one. six. Only 30 minutes. Um, we talked about Aziz when Master of None um was it love stories or scenes of uh marriage uh, moment moments in love moments of love yeah something like that pseudo season three of master of none last year yeah which he did a lot more behind the camera than in front of for uh, i think he's only in one episode yeah and um you know he, he had taken a step back he he had the allegations come out of sexual misconduct and uh really kind of retreated from public life at that point he had a comeback special but then really didn't hear a lot from him uh, other than master of none um and so when this comes out i don't even know what my expectations were i think more than anything i just kind of wanted to hear what aziz wanted to talk about what he wanted to say um i think he uh, i think what i guess when i think about this special and i think about what I liked most, it was his storytelling and his ability to just kind of like talk about his ideas and his concepts. But I didn't really find myself laughing a whole lot. <laughs> Did you find this to be like a funny comedy special? Uh, I found some of the stuff in the beginning uh, pretty funny. Like I liked how he started off. With, it's like, no, please uh, make me take the extra 10 seconds. Please check my COVID pass, like stuff like that. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's a lot of like, like funny observations interspliced with more serious societal observations that are relatable to you know mass audiences so yeah it's definitely not like a laugh out loud all the time thing no question and not neither was right now the comeback special from 2019 um i think right now is a little more refined like he had you know been on a full-fledged tour Whereas Night Love Com- Night Nightclub Comedian was more or less just a few runs, I believe he did in the lead up to this. So a little different, you know, approach there. Um, on the other hand, though, even before everything happened with, uh, you know, the allegations, which we discussed more about when when we talked about right now, uh, Aziz had kind of already been like public retreat, you know, like he he had he was not on social media then, you know, he wasn't. Sure. He wasn't acting in all kinds of movies or anything. He did. He was already doing kind of what he talked about in this special, where he kind of only does what he really likes to do, and that had largely been doing a stand-up once in a while and making Master of None. 
of which he like is very involved in the creation of. So on the other hand, I think what's definitely different is like the almost precocious uh, energy of his joke telling is definitely gone. He's definitely a lot more reserved now. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say he's low energy, but he's just more like almost calculating and how, how he talks about things. Like sometimes it's almost in like a hushed tone, you know? So it's, Oh yeah. I, I'd say it's definitely a slightly different approach. On the other hand, I still enjoyed this just cause I, I enjoy Aziz as a personality and yeah, like you, you'll see like, I think like the bones of some of his old like joke telling in this where he does like weird voices and stuff. Like it's familiar, I guess, if you're like really up on all the Aziz specials again, this is his sixth one. Um, but I, I just kind of enjoyed hearing and more or less just shoot the shit, you know, which is what he did with this. Yeah. Um, you know, it starts off with this footage of him when he was first giving a stand-up comedy that a friend of his at NYU uh, used for a documentary about him as he was you know, starting off his comedy career then and kind of splices that as like the the framing of this you know this is where he started his career this is where he's at now and kind of trying to get back to his nightclub roots so to speak and i think that really works as a framing device i, th- I really enjoyed seeing young aziz and and uh him talking about like this like almost like simpler time in his life when it was like all he was thinking about and i think that's really juxtaposed well against a lot of these topics he's talking about in terms of, uh, you know, using a flip phone as compared to a smartphone, trying to reduce his uh, intake of the internet and um, kind of just seeing like where he's at and where the world is at. You know, I, I thought the commentary I found to be most like, I, I guess probably funny, but also at the same time, like, made me take a step back and and think was his commentary on Trump because the way he kind of frames it right is that Trump though he is this he I don't think he endorses any of Trump's policy or persona he basically says as much yeah he gives you exactly what people really want which is just something to talk about something to gives you the content yeah gives you the content I think how he puts it and it's uh very true and uh you know talking about like the Biden administration, Kamala Harris. And like, he's like, I don't even know what these people look like. <laughs> like <and> he just <laughs> talks about how he likes Trump as a president because he was entertaining. And that's kind of like where we've gotten to where we just constantly want to be entertained, even when we're on, you know, on the phone with our mom and we're looking up uh, the what, like 16 things that what, what, what celebrity was it can't live without. Um, yeah, I forgot. Yeah. yeah. But I, I just thought that was such a, a stew observation is something that really made you think. And I think when you think about Aziz's earlier specials, he always was a pretty thoughtful guy. But like you said, he had that, that personality and that stage presence that was so like neurotic and just kind of mm-hmm. all over the place and really brought such like a high pitch. And when he uses it here, it, you can like hear old disease, but it's not him. And um, right. he's, he's, he's grown and he's not, never going to be the Aziz I think we we came to know him as coming up again which is probably for the best right yeah he's 38 now and I wonder if we, if he gets back to being like stadium tour Aziz let's not forget he's one of only like 10 stand-up comedians to sell out Madison Square Garden doesn't mean he's the best stand-up ever but it definitely means he's significant and 
he's just at a different place in his approach uh, now. It's not so much making you laugh as much as more or less making you think. And uh, along those lines of what you were saying, I liked his, you know, his talking about the algorithm and how, you know, everyone, everyone collectively is worse than Trump because we're all kind of just slaves to slaves to this stuff. Right? Yeah. And how he's then he goes out and how he's actually on team flip phone, which I totally buy, actually, again, given how um, long he's been off social media, where which is having a manager post for him promotionally, you know, makes total sense. I think by the funniest thing he ever he d- does on nightclub comedian is his joke about ice cube and the colonoscopy versus uh, not getting the vaccine and stuff, yeah. which is uh, led to from his uh, jokes about Aaron Rodgers, which I thought were pretty funny. You know, he's, he's suggesting empathy and at least a different approach to stuff versus just punching down and gang piling, uh, pil- piling yeah. on and stuff like that. The thing is, game doesn't no- work, right? And that's good. And then he leads into the uh, the cube joke, which he obviously ends with it being like, "Hey, I actually don't know if this is true," which is really funny because, like, I think everyone's kind of on for the ride. You're like, because it's it's just so funny and entertaining. You're like, oh yeah, like I, like I was thinking as I was watching, I was like, "Did Ice Cube get a colonoscopy? Is that like public knowledge?" <laughs> and then know. he says it's made up. It's really funny. Yeah, no, I thought that was pretty funny. I also liked. Um the the bit about timothy chalamet which i just yeah. thought like the way he like draws the stories i was like you know what this does kind of feel like our lives like it's just constantly jumping from these stupid controversy stupid controversy at this point. right yeah he also in this i think kind of a trademark of his in the past where he invoked the famous friend in this case it was seeing frank ocean at a party <laughs> and talking about how he does it how frank does it name namely not putting stuff out and then how oh, you have to be okay making less money as he goes off on that. And then he brings a full circle by saying, yeah, but Frank's got a jewelry line now. <laughs> the whole, uh, I, I enjoyed how, you know, he makes the comment about Drake and Drake Hospital or Drake Healthcare, whatever it was, stuff like that. Everyone, hospital. Yeah, n- nobody wants to make the chronic. Everyone just wants to make Beats by Dre headphones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like all the, the commentary here on this, even if it's not like always the most laugh out loud stuff i was just kind of enjoying just listening to him talk about this stuff and you could tell the people in the room at the comedy uh seller were, were definitely into it too oh 100 percent uh people were really into it. i think just having aziz back people are excited about um yeah i mean aziz continues to be i think uh a, a figure that we're always going to want more from and we're probably yeah. never going to feel like we get enough from so uh good good for him any last thoughts on this before we move on i hope he makes master of none uh season three proper with him back but who knows you know if he wants to act at all anymore we really don't know i I could see him getting into like like directing movies or something like that something Mm. a little more like confined a little more long form but anyways who knows we'll we'll talk about it whenever it comes out Let's move on to The Gilded Age, though, on HBO, uh, a new series uh, premiering with Carrie Coons and uh, uh, Christine Baranski and yep. Cynthia Nixon. Mm-hmm. Uh, some some fun names on there. Morgan Spector, who I like quite a yes. bit in Plot Against America. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of HBO uh, veterans, honestly. Yeah, it really is. And um uh, I'm gonna uh, full disclosure. Not 
really a fan of these sorts of period pieces and I've, I've made that known if you've ever followed the podcast so going into this I was skeptical if I was actually going to leave this first episode wanting to watch more but I do because I thought this first episode for as much as it does a lot of table setting it's mm. 80 minutes long so it's you know already a, a pretty bloated first episode I think it does just enough where I'm like you know, there, there's enough drums here going on. You know, you get to see Carrie Coon like trying to like fight and claw her way into this social sphere, yeah. like I, high I, society, and 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 just totally be on board with it. And I think also the time period is pretty fascinating. You know, that it was the 1880s New York City as they're trying to, you know, build up this ultra wealthy area around Central Park. So, a uh, lot of lot of cool stuff here. How did you feel about the first episode? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, this is the Julian Fellows Dallin Abbey follow up. Long time coming. At one point, this show is going to be on NBC. And, you know, I've seen the Dallin Abbey film, second one's coming out later this year. I've seen an episode here or there. This seems to be a bit of a shift from Dallin Abbey, which was very clearly a upstairs, downstairs class story, you know, the, the landed family and the servants down, down below. The Gilded Age, as the name suggests, you know, the time period this is more of like a new money, old money thing between the rich. So I'm not really sure how much interplay with the servants we're going to get here. Definitely seems like the cast is quite large, though. But, you know, like Succession, watching rich people have conflict with each other, I don't have to be relating to this to enjoy this. And I think as, as you started, a lot of appealing, talented performers at the lead of this series. So has a lot of parts I like. Now, whether uh, the conflict maintains enough drama to sustain itself, uh, we just need to wait and see there. Um, you know, like high society quibbles, you know, it might feel a little uh, superficial, conflict to conflict. So I'm curious to see how much that's sustained when we're not like dealing with the railroad robber baron tycoon type stuff, you know, but uh, you still have like that immaculate uh, costume design and big production values, definitely bigger than what the show would have gotten if it was made in NBC. So I'm definitely interested in seeing where it goes and we'll keep watching right now. But uh, yeah, I think it's, it, it, it's a probably a tougher sell than something like succession or billions where oh, yeah. there's like, I think more tangible drama slash humor to, to latch onto here. Whereas this, you kind of have to be invested in this more uh, traditional form of storytelling. I think, you know, kind of like how Dowen worked. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a good call and a good way to kind of summarize it. Um, I think they definitely try to do a lot with this. I mean, you have the, you have like, you kind of laid out the Christine Bransky as uh, Agnes versus Carrie Coon as uh, Bertha Russell or uh, yeah, right. Bertha, I think is correct. And um, that kind of like old money, old guard, not wanting the new money to kind of come in, take over and run their stratosphere. But then you also have um, Louisa Jacobson as the, the niece who's sent to live with right. the aunts and she's penniless and, you know, <laughs> not really used to this environment. So you got a little bit like the fish out of water thing. You have mm. Denise uh, Benton playing Peggy, uh, this right. aspiring writer who's taken in as a, a worker for the family. And 
um then you can that's kind of where you get like the downstairs of the the show you know like the the maids and the workers servants right. um and then you got the like the young up-and-coming i don't know like generation nieces, nephews generation yeah. and and everything going on with them including um one of them being in a, a, a probably secret gay relationship at this time so mm. there's there's a lot going on here you know and you, <laughs> you you mentioned like the uh the Morgan Spectre of it all, where his character is just kind of doing these like cutthroat business deals and kind of wrecking shit as they're mm-hmm. making their way in, in New York City. It's there, there's a lot I think to latch on to. You can probably pick and choose the the plots that you're invested in and tune, tune your brains out for other parts of it. Which which plot lines other than the uh, the new money, old money, are you most invested in? Yeah, I'd say uh, the, the the Peggy one has a lot of potential because that also is bringing race into this right. whereas the majority of this is about class so seeing how that's handled i think is important because obviously we know how that relationship worked at this time um yeah i mean i i, I generally i just want to see carrie coon just be yeah. herself which is <laughs> one of the best actors in television you know and her her trying to uh carve her way into this existing high society that isn't welcoming to her despite the fact that she has everything everyone else has uh i mean let's see it you know i'm down let's go <laughs> yeah and and where where she left at the end of this episode she seems pretty set that she's gonna like burn the world down before she's not like, accepted into the society so excited to see where that goes for sure um i agree i think the the knee benton of it all is peggy is really fascinating you, you get that one scene with her and mary and uh, on the the train in the back where she's like yeah it doesn't smell like it does up there and um it mm. seems like they're gonna be bringing some of these things into it um and probably uh tangling a pretty wicked web if i had to say so um yeah it, i i think i'm impressed with it only because i expected not to like this show and i'm i'm in so uh, yeah. i think if you if you like drums if you like the drama you, you're probably gonna leave with something that you like about this show for yeah. sure Ah, Dave, you ready to talk about some movies? Yeah, let's go. Let's start with Amazon, where a hero. Um, we we watched this weekend. It's there now. Um, the I, I believe it's nominated for the 2022 Academy Awards for the Iranian submission for best foreign feature film. Is that correct, Dave? Yeah. So this is the uh, latest Asghar Farhadi film. It's on the short list for best international feature film. We'll get those nominations in about two weeks. It is expected to make that you know top five and be officially nominated. Where it'll be going up, I think, in a pretty impressive year against stuff like Drive My Car and Sorrentino's The Hand of God. Uh, it's a, it's a big year for international cinema. Uh, Flea as well. So a hero, I think, has kind of been hyped for a while because Farhadi has a big uh, uh, reputation. At, on the you know world cinema stage and he has actually won this oscar t- twice before for uh the salesman uh in 2016 and as well as his breakout in 2011 so uh, a lot of hype for this movie just existing and now it's finally available uh, on prime as you said after premiering back at con in 2021 where it won the uh second place prize so there's a lot of i think you know riding on this film just because farhadi has such a uh, strong rec- reputation and i didn't really know much about it at all going in i didn't watch a trailer or anything um 
So I just kind of went in blind. And, you know, from what I understand, definitely kind of fits with his uh, filmography to this point where it's a big old, messy, moral, ethical uh, dilemma type drama. That's definitely what this movie is. Yeah. Um, so it, it basically follows uh, Rahim, played by Amir Jadidi, who I, I think, first of all, he's absolutely just like a presence on screen. Like right. he, every time he was uh, in the, the shot, it's hard not to just like be drawn to him. But uh, basically, Rahim is in um, debt prison um, over in Iran and is out on a weekend leave or I guess like a two day leave. Mm-hmm. And during this time is trying to find a way to pay off his debts so that he can make bail. I guess it's technically like repay his, his bail or something like that. Yeah, he's like crime can get forgiven by the person he wronged and then he can right. basically have a sentence commuted is I guess more or less what's going on here. Wasn't sure. Is it actually just debt prison or is he just kind of in like low security prison for nonviolent crime? I wasn't actually sure if it was like, yeah, exactly uh, what's going on. Yeah. Uh, from just a few articles I read about it, apparently this is a thing in certain parts of the world where there is such thing as like a debt prison and mm. it's like its own separate thing. However, I, I believe the way it's portrayed in this film has come under some criticism because it looks kind of cushy. And I, don't, I get the sense that's not actually how uh, that prison is in reality. Right. Um, so while, while he's out on this, uh, you know, two, two day leave, he sees his family, he's out and about, he finds this purse with some gold coins, gets them assessed, realizes it's not enough to uh, make his debt. And so he decides to turn this handbag back in. And this leads to uh, a a bunch of things happening. And I'll kind of leave it there. uh, So if people want to check it out, we won't, you know, you can turn it off here and go and come back to hear our rest of our thoughts. Um, Yeah, it's definitely um, a moral (laughs) quandary type movie. I found myself enjoying it, but also just super frustrated by Raheem as a character um, because you you just he sucks you in by being this obviously very like genuine nice person who really loves his family but some of the choices he makes feel like they come out of left field at times and don't feel totally uh, like I, I feel like you don't really understand where the motivation comes from all the time do you get that sense too yeah well I, I mean if you kind of remember piece by piece how things happen a lot of the motivation is thrust upon him by someone else. He doesn't find the coins. Right. It's not his idea to uh, sell them. It's not his idea to take credit for returning them. You know, nothing seems to be his idea. Mm-hmm. And for me, I had a hard time really rooting for him because, like you said, he kind of just starts being irrational. Like when he attacks uh, Hossein, when he attacks his yeah. uh, the creditor. It's like, well, well, that guy didn't fuck you, dude. You fucked yourself. Right. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Why are you doing this? This is the mm-hmm. innocent guy who just isn't putting up with your bullshit. You know, yep. and like uh, his daughter, which is actually Farhadi's daughter in real life, his, his daughter huh. kind of uh, expounds upon that directly to Rahim and for the audience, in case you weren't picking up on it. But on top of that, like family wise, like he just seems like so absent uh, in his family, like like his son, who, who's, you know, his speech impediment's a huge thing uh, in, in this story in terms of how he can be used to sway public opinion. But like, 
he doesn't seem like a loving dad at any point, you know? So I, I had a hard time really like rooting for the dude, you know? Yeah. And I think the ending was kind of the only place it could really end up given, yeah. given what had happened. I think in the more interesting thing to me was towards the end where like the stuff with the charity happens and once the uh the twists and turns begin and people start wising up to what's going on the charity feels uh misled but also screwed in terms of they need their own reputation to survive in the public opinion and that in terms of decision making to protect something bigger than just this one guy i thought was that that's where I was thinking, you know, in my thoughts the most about like the the ethics of what's going on, more so yeah, than I, like Raheem's actual struggle. Yeah, I agree. I thought that was actually probably the most captivating part of the whole movie for me was, you know, when they have everybody in the room together in the the charity building and they're kind of going back and forth about like, well, you know, if we give the money to him, this is how we'll look at this point, and uh, mm-hmm. we have to keep a certain image and. and you know, kind of stay true to the charity. I thought that was definitely really interesting. I, I do feel like there's that one scene between him and his son where his son talks about, you know, being scared that, that he's going to go back and not wanting him to. I thought that was a pretty tender moment and sucked me in. I do feel like having the, the child ha- um, with the speech impediment was, I don't know, it's, a, it's an easy way to like suck someone in you know like to kind of tug on the heartstrings a little bit i feel like not necessarily that that's what the director was going for but just kind of like i don't know i i I don't know if cheap is the right word but just i I was kind of taken back so i was like ah you know i don't really know why this why he had to have the speech impediment or what that really adds other than just being like Mm. i feel bad for him yeah well that's the thing like i wasn't like feeling any more bad for raheem i think if anything you're supposed to like not like how him and the family is kind of using the kid true uh to sway public opinion in the story that's how i was true. feeling like when he's paraded up on stage uh in the, the charity like uh uh fundraising scene you know mm-hmm. so yeah it was one where it's like man like I'm, I'm i'm honestly having a hard time like having sympathy for what's going on here as i'm yeah. watching it and i haven't seen uh farhadi's other work um you know, some of his other stuff again has been really, really acclaimed. So I don't really have a comparison point for this. Um, I actually really wanted to see his last movie that came out a few years back. Everybody knows that I saw the trailer multiple times. That was a Javier Bardem, Penelope Cruz film. Um, but yeah, people seem to people seem to be digging a hero, uh, and I definitely commend it for not being predictable. And you have. Uh, uh, Jadidi's, perfor- Jadidi's performance which as you said is captivating in kind of a non-traditional manner where it's just, he, it's definitely a really lived in like performance whenever he's he's there so lots of stuff I appreciate about the movie even if like I don't know if it totally totally uh, landed with me at the end yeah no I, I agree I, I think this is a good movie but I think it's one that um maybe could have used a little more coloring in or with the script in terms of like, why, why, why do I want this guy to succeed or, or fail? You know, he's not really a protagonist or a, you know, an anti-hero or anything right. like that. It just kind of is. So. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it's like set up as a thriller, but it's not really a thriller except for that no. one moment where they're, he's trying to get the new, the new job. And right. they're just going through this elaborate scheme to mislead the like HR at this job. Who's 
all he's doing is following up on the story and making sure this guy's deed is true because they're hiring him based on his character or whatever. You know, it's like watching all these characters try and mislead this dude over what exactly. You're like, oh, well, I get it. But on the other hand, I get what the other guy's up to, too. So I guess that's the whole point. You know, it's just like yeah. there's a lot of both sides going on and just kind of a big old mess. Definitely a big old mess. Um, you know, but it's worth checking out. It's on Amazon. Everybody has Amazon Prime. Go go, give it a watch, I'd say. Um, any last thoughts on A Hero, Dave? That's all. Um, I it's, don't it's expect be it. It'll be nominated. It's not going to win. I feel like Drive My Car has locked locked in Best International Feature Film, but it, it should be nominated once again. And we will be talking about Drive My Car in one second, so stay tuned. But first, we're going to jump to a Sundance Film Festival movie that we were able to watch after Yang. Dave, I mean, <laughs> when you when you mentioned you wanted to watch this one night, I looked it up. Uh, as someone that wasn't familiar with Koganada's first film, Columbus, I was kind of like, ah, okay, you know, it's got Colin Farrell. Um, I was I'm aware of Joni Jody Turner Smith, so I was like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and Haley Lou Richardson too. I was like, okay, I'd like those three a- actors. I'll, I'll check out, see see what's going on here. Um, after Yang, uh, heavy vibes, and re- really, I think the the two movies that came to mind um, were one that I watched very recently, Swan Song with Mahershala mm-hmm. Ali, which we we reviewed. Check that out, but also her from Spike Jones. Um that's from, a good call. What 2014. Uh Joaquin. we'll 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 talk a little bit more about that in a second but I really left just with those two movies coming to mind cuz if this the melancholy of this film is so strong that like I needed to like give myself like an, an hour break after watching it just to kind of process it all. How how did you feel watching this? Yeah, no, I agree. You know, I had a lot of uh, anticipation for this film, which I'd been anticipating for for years. I mean, this was made in 2019. I, I thought we thought this was coming out in 2020, you know, pre-pandemic. We actually talked about it back in 2020 on our, you know, uh, early Oscars episode. You can check that out. So it's been a movie I've been anticipating. Finally hits can 2021, then doesn't come out uh, this year. It's like, what's A24 doing with this movie? They were uh, They were saving it. And it got its U.S. release at Sundance, and here we are. Um, and I had seen Columbus, which was the Haley Lou Richardson breakout for me and for for many people. So I had a lot of anticipation for this. Um, and, you know, knowing it's going to be like a more like high-minded sci-fi film, I had thought of something like Claire Denis' uh, High Life with Robert Pattinson, but that's still a movie that that's still a movie that takes place in space. You know, like after Yang, it's set in the future and has some sci-fi elements, but still very grounded and uh, subtle and really just a kind of more cerebral, meditative form of storytelling, uh, despite it being, you know, sci-fi by definition. And it it wasn't really what I expected. Not that I had any expectations. There is no trailer for this movie, you know? So I uh, didn't really know what to expect, but uh, I think it's still really impressive for what it's uh, setting out to achieve in terms of this really intimate storytelling. Yeah, it's um, it's a, first of all, a beautiful film. Koganada's framing of shots, the way he uses symmetry and color. Um, you know, the, you think about 
the the shots of Colin Farrell sitting on the couch watching uh, Yang's memories through those goggles that he has and just kind of like the 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 shadows but also like the vibrancy of like the glasses and how that calls like to mind like what he's watching and why that's that's so vibrant um i thought it was just really fascinating and just like they they picked like one of the most like beautifully beautiful and architecturally like stunning houses to like set this in that whole house is just incredible it feels very asian you know in, in a way so i don't know if this is supposed to be in like future asia of some sort or something like that but the the idea of like identity and um asian identity specifically is is right. a heavy theme throughout the movie um yeah i mean i, I thought not only was the framing of it fantastic and, and the, the way it was shot fantastic the score also i think matches the vibe of the film and really sets the tone for the film beautifully um score was done by uh, Asuka Matsumiya sorry Matsumiya uh, mm-hmm. my apologies on that but um, yeah I think every piece of this is just so meticulously like done and worked on to to really give you an experience to question like I mean I, I left I left with a lot of questions a lot of thoughts about like what does it mean to know somebody um, yeah like what does it mean to like have a relationship with uh people when those relationships are transactional in some sense like yang's life wasn't necessarily his own it was for someone else and uh i think then also like as Haley lou richardson's character comes into it more like how do how much do we actually ever know someone i think is also another really strong theme of the movie what what questions or thoughts were you most sitting with afterwards yeah i think i think you nailed it with those as i said really cerebral films so the whole like what does it mean to be human uh piece is is very strong you know this this idea of these techno sapiens and what they what they mean you know like you start off early on there's like like uh, legal issues with what you can do with your you know robot once it's once it's dead right and you see like that black market uh, mechanic type figure uh, telling you bad Russ. stuff about how it's like harvesting your data for this, you know, big tech company. Right. But later on, when like they're kind of a- a- accessing Yang's memories and you're learning about like these little fragments, these little pieces of what did Yang determine was important to remember about this one moment he was existing in. That's the stuff where I think it's really like contemplative and makes you, you know, makes you think, I think in a unexpected way. On top of that, there's a huge aspect of Asian identity in, in this story. Uh, you know, the, at the center of this, we have a, a, you know, little girl adopted from China to non-Asian parents. And the whole point of Yang was, to have a Asian face in the house to help her, uh, you know, be comfortable in society and also learn more about her culture that she's not in anymore. So, you know, Coconata, Korean uh, filmmaker, so it makes sense that he would be bringing this kind of perspective uh, to this. So, like I said, didn't really know 
what kind of themes we were going to be going for uh, with this film. At the end of the day, though, it's really just about saying goodbye to someone you knew. You know, there's not. It's not like this movie has a ton of plot. You kind of have the whole plot determined in the first, you know, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Once, once Yang's gone, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that I think that's actually a really good point. Like the the movie more is about like just understanding somebody, and um, I, I found it really interesting to see. I think the the question that really was like resonating with me was the question that Yang had about his identity as an Asian person, because as a techno sapien, I believe they were referred to in the movie. um, He obviously didn't actually have an identity in that sense, but was referred to in that way and was actually picked to be uh, Micah's, you know, older brother to help her learn about her Asian identity as an adopted child. Um, and for him to kind of like step back and be like, well, what actually makes me Asian? How do I help this other person understand their identity without me actually understanding my own? I thought it was just truly, um, really <laughs> like, uh, thought provoking. And it, it's one of those like, things that makes you take a step back and recognize like oh yeah we all are really just humans like when it comes down to it like the there's more of a global sense to this movie than anything else and i thought that was really profound uh profoundly done by koganada and yeah you know even as we're talking i'm thinking about like why this movie is so great and it's because like this isn't like the typical kind of conversation we have on the podcast when we review movies. A lot of times we're talking about like the different aspects we liked or certain scenes that we felt stood out or performances, but this movie is so much larger than some of its parts because it really is going for themes that not many movies I think do as expertly as this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Haley Richardson kind of has a similar uh, narrative purpose in after Yang as her, her character did in Columbus In Columbus she meets John Cho's lead character and it's kind of helping him understand and come to grips with what's going on with him. In this case, kind of not that different from how she interacts with Colin Farrell once they finally meet towards the end of this film. Yeah. Uh, there's some revelations about what Haley Richardson's character is that I think are, are interesting. And, you know, uh, Colin Farrell's uh, character, Jake, has some other biases that he's bringing in that kind of come up, uh, you know, as the movie's going on. But, um, uh, yeah, I agree. Definitely something that's greater than some of its parts. But even those parts, you know, like you said, kind of impressive uh, set design for the home and particularly like the angles of how how we're like framing those shots within the home. Columbus, a movie about literally about architecture, you know, so not not a uh, surprising to see Coconata, uh not sacrificing that sort of thing either. But I really liked how um, the sci fi is communicated in like really subtle ways. Like we have. Um, several scenes in Jake's self-driving car, which is kind of comes across as this like a uh, glassy tube, which feels yep. very, very sci-fi. And, you know, I think there's some like societal stuff that you kind of see in the background of scenes, but for the most part, it's really just a, you know, a character study uh, type film. I thought Justin Min as Yang yeah. was really strong, you know, for large parts of the movies, he's not there. He is literally just a, uh, dead husk but when he's actually there whether it's in the beginning of the film 
or in primarily all these flashback scenes, uh, definitely a really uh, commanding uh, presence. Oh, totally. I, I think he was fantastic. I thought this was one of the best Colin Farrell performances. Um, and, you know, I think the word that would probably describe every performance on here, except for one, would be restraint. Um, I think the one that I wouldn't characterize that way would be Malia Emma as Micah, mm. who kind of gets to be like the emotional avatar. Yeah, very raw. Um, and I got to say, Malia Emma was just like really blew me away as a child performer. Um, you know, we, we've seen some really good child performances that we, we've talked about recently, whether it was on Station Eleven, mm-hmm. um, you know, a few of the movies we talked about this year. But this one was just like yeah. felt so natural and real. Um, I, I think that that uh, actress is probably going to be going places. Um, and I really felt like the emotional moments that hit were uh, Micah talking with Colin Farrell about you know being bullied. Um, about uh, the impact Yang had on her. Um, and that really, I felt like, was like the most catharsis I got in the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but also the scene between Justin Min and Jodie Turner-Smith, I thought was also pretty dynamite. It's it's all really good stuff. Yeah, totally. Also, shout out the opening da- uh, title sequence, which is this big <laughs> yeah. elaborate dance number between the family and other families as this kind of uh, global uh familial virtual dance competition thing that that was just so committed as yeah. a title sequence just really uh really fun yeah stands out from the rest of the movie uh and i think just a really fun way to start it off yeah i mean after yang if if you get a chance to watch it i highly recommend um definitely a movie album gonna be thinking about a lot moving yeah forward, i'm looking so. forward to uh kogana's next work he's a producer at part part of the directing group for uh, Pachinko, this new Apple TV Plus series coming out this year. And on the performing side of things, Joey Turner-Smith's going to be in the new Noah Baumbach film. Haley Richardson's going to be in White Lotus Season 2. And, uh, you know, Colin Farrell, I think, is just really settling into this character actor stage of his career uh, to good effect. So you know, everyone's, uh, you know, doing work. And I guess Justin Min, he, he'll be the one to watch because he's definitely going to get a lot more eyeballs now after this performance. Well, the, the next time we're going to see Colin Farrell's going to be in the Batman, right? Uh, yeah, the, it's Penguin. Uh, one of the, Two hours yeah. of makeup. <laughs> God. Yeah, this character, actor, Colin Farrell, I'm here for it, man. So, alrighty, let's move on to a movie I unfortunately did not get a chance to uh, see, but Dave did. And I've only heard excellent things about this, so I'm excited to hear you, your review, Dave. Drive My Car. Tell me all about it. Yes. <clears throat> so, Drive My Car has been slowly expanding in release uh, here in the U.S. from Janus Films. And still not a wide release, still going very, uh, very very slow. But there's a lot of hype for Drive My Car, considered the best international feature film uh, favorite at this point uh, from Japan, from Rizuki Hamaguchi. And Hamaguchi uh, has really just been on an absolute tear when you look into what he's been up to. In 2020, he wrote uh, the screenplay for Wife of a Spy, the film that won the second place prize at Venice in 2020. Then at Berlin in 2021, his move, his anthology film Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy came out and won the Silver Bear, the second place prize at Berlin. And then he released Drive My Car, his second film of 2021, which is largely expected to win an Oscar. So the dude has been on absolute fire right now. And, you know, you, you just love to see it. 
Drive My Car is an adaptation and kind of an expansion of this Murakami short story. Uh, one of my other favorite films uh, in recent memory, Burning from uh, Lee Cheng Dong, mm. was also a Murakami adaptation for context. And Drive My Car, to me, I, I would I would actually kind of expect. Uh, honestly, I'll say I expect I expect Hamaguchi to get Best Director nominated as well for this film. Lest we forget, the directing branch of the Academy has been very international the past few years. Remember, Paul Palakowski for Cold War got nominated. Last year, Thomas Vinterberg for another round got nominated. There's so much yes. love and adoration for Drive My Car that I think Hamaguchi is going to get in there. You know, it's been winning a lot. This movie's been winning lots of critics' first place prizes. It's kind of rare to see all these critics groups actually pick the same film for their number one pick. Alas, that's what we're seeing here. And, you know, it's not a film for everyone. This is a three hour film, uh, primarily in Japanese, but also in uh, several other languages, Mandarin, Korean, Korean sign language. So there's, it's a methodical uh, character drama in a foreign language. So it's inherently, you know, it's not Squid Game. It's not as easy as a sell as other stuff uh, from Asia. But I think it's absolutely worth everyone's time just because at no point does the movie feel like three hours and it never felt long. And it's so intricate and really well done at what it's trying to achieve. I was honestly blown away. I think it's honestly a complete masterpiece. I would have it in my top three, I would say. You know, obviously we did our best movies of 2021 before either of us had seen this film, so we couldn't rank it. I would definitely have it in my top three. I think I would have it number two behind The Green Knight. Uh, Really impressive film. And I'll say I won't spoil too much here, but just to get get the, uh, get the, the beats, you know, our, our central performer, uh, Hideo Toshi uh, Nishijima, who's a well-known Japanese actor, he plays uh, Yusuke uh, Kafuku, who is a well-known uh, theater uh, creator, and he gets hired to move from Tokyo out out west to Hiroshima and do this multilingual performance of the famous Chekhov play Uncle Vanya, and as he's you know casting this. Uh, theater production, which he's intentionally doing with multiple languages. He catches people that speak Japanese, Mandarin, Korean, Korean sign language. The whole point is that it's like about like the breadth of language, and they're going to put on this play with a big screen on top of the stage, and everyone's lines will be translated because not everyone in the audience, most people in the audience, don't know all these languages, right? They might only know one or two. So it's this whole right. big thing. And that's just kind of like our uh, establishing like you know plot because uh yusuke his whole reason for doing this is because this movie has a 40 minute cold open has a 40 minute prologue where we learn about his relationship with his wife who is a uh, more famous like television actor a little more uh, in front of the camera uh, than he is and they have this whole relationship where after they uh, ha- are intimate uh, she starts to like uh, dictate uh, creative ideas she has for scripts and things like that. And it's like this whole, like they have this very like specific creative process. And on top of that, she'll help him learn uh, his lines for his theater work by literally dictating into tapes, the other lines of the scene. And he will drive his car and, 
listen to her speak to him and then say his actual lines, you know, in time. And um, when he goes to uh, Hiroshima to, you know, put on this play, uh, the people that hired him won't let him drive his car because of a previous incident. So they will hire him a driver. And that's where we meet uh, the driver figure, the driver character, Misaki's young 23-year-old. And she uh, starts driving Yusuke's car and uh, listening to all these tapes from his wife, um, who is no longer in the story when she watched the end of the cold open. And the movie just slowly progresses as these two characters begin to know each other. And it's, I think it's a really deep, effective movie about uh, communication, but also like loss and moving forward and what it truly means to know someone, you know, I guess in in the same vein in certain ways to after gang, it's a very uh, methodical movie that still has a lot of interesting plot, but it never really goes where you expect it to go. All these things come up and it just doesn't do the obvious tropey thing at any time. So I don't, I really don't want to spoil anything. So I won't say too much more, but uh, there's just loaded with amazing performances uh, the red uh, Saab 900, the titular car, absolutely fantastic movie car, looks fucking awesome. And just seeing shots of this car driving around Tokyo, driving around Hiroshima, driving around uh, Hokkaido as well, like just looks so good. And like I said, I think Hamaguchi, like his whole approach to this storytelling is just so specific. And once you start watching the movie, you'll understand just how like intimate and like detailed a movie like this really is because it's not a movie loaded with tons of plot but it just has like such rich character dynamics that uh just fucking masterful honestly so i, I don't know when this will hit streaming i don't think it'll be there anytime soon but uh, once you have the chance to watch it you definitely should uh i just want to say 40 minute op- uh cold open is a fucking flex and the fact that you can do <laughs> something like that and have it work is just i think a testament to how I- uh, excellent this movie is can't wait to watch it fully expecting to love it um thank you for your review dave uh we'll we'll circle back if i get a chance to watch it and it feels worthwhile to revisit maybe around the award season time but dave we're gonna wrap up there for this week pretty loaded podcast what about next week what do we got next week yeah next week we have new music from earth gang and kyle and we'll try and get to flee which is another best international film contender this year and we'll also do those oscar nom predictions you know drive my car is going to be in there but what else is getting in there we'll get to it we'll be talking about it all uh subscribe youtube.com slash nostalgia pod spotify look us up nostalgia and give us a five star uh, rating and follow us there and catch us on twitter at nostalgia pod see you next week yeah.